This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Masks? Will you wear one? Should you wear one? What are the best fabrics? Do they even work? Also, did you know that 80% of the deaths in Canada from COVID-19 were from seniors living in long-term care homes? Are you suffering from life's little stressors or downright depressed? Kindy Gill joins me to discuss the Dalian Method. And of course, Dr. Gurdi Parhar answers your COVID-19 questions. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. I want to talk about masks. This week, uh, the Chief Public Health Officer, Teresa Tam, says masks can, quote-unquote, add a layer of protection in situations where physical distancing is impossible. But that protection is only for the people around you. So... I just want to say that masks, I'm used to wearing them. I'm a registered nurse, and so I'm very accustomed to that. Uh, I wear the medical-grade ones, and you know what? Full disclosure, I wear the medical-grade ones out in public as well. When you breathe or cough or sneeze or laugh or sing, droplets will be expelled from your mouth and nose. And so uh, those actually get released into the air, and they may hang there for a bit. We've also learned this week from the CDC that we don't have to worry so much about the surfaces, which is good because I haven't changed my cleaning practices anyway. They were obsessive before and they're still obsessive now, but you don't have to worry about it so much um, because they, it doesn't seem, the virus doesn't seem to survive um, on those surfaces as long or as much as it was previously suspected. So, but if, when you wear a mask, you may notice after a little while, especially if it's a paper type of mask, a medical grade one, or even a cloth one, that it gets a little bit damp. So the moisture in your breath is staying behind. And so that's what would be going into the air. So the hope is that the mask will stop some of your droplets from reaching the air, and then that could stop them from contaminating surfaces if it gets contaminated, and um, also infecting other people. So the the thing I want you to know is that physical distancing trumps masks. And there are no comprehensive studies on the efficacy of cloth masks, and they aren't really a guarantee of anything. We think this might, or it is thought that this might help. Um, We say that uh, masks need to be worn out of respect for others. And it does beg the question, does it provide you with protection? It might it might not. And of course, physical distancing does um, trump that. Now, I had a great chat this week with Mo, uh, with Van Culler's Mo Amir um, about dating in a pandemic. And so we kind of joked a little bit about because the, the virus is transmittable via kissing. So you can do everything but kiss. <laughs> Used to be the opposite. Um, so anyway, um, the, it used to be the, the other way around. <laughs> Kiss and don't do anything else. But now we're having way more fun. Um, so um, anyhow, the so he also asked me if, because um, lots of uh, what are the Zoom calls, I've been on a million of them, you know, if you should be wearing sweatpants or not. Anyway, no sweatpants and no kissing. So that ought to make for some fun. But head on over to um, Van Culler on Twitter and you can listen to that podcast. Um, 
but I just want to give you a little bit of guidance. According to Health Canada, the non-medical face masks or face coverings should be made of at least two layers of tightly woven material fabric, such as cotton or linen. Uh, knit materials like the kind that are used in T-shirts are stretchable, and small holes might open in that knit, so that's not advisable. And the mask should allow for easy breathing. And not everybody can wear a mask. People with asthma, COPD, they cannot wear those masks. So try not to judge people out there. Um, but make sure that they're large enough to cover your nose and your mouth. Anyway, you can do a window test, and that means holding your mask up to the window when it's sunny outside, and if it's pretty opaque, it should do the job that we hope it will do. Um, but the uh, according to the 2013 study in the journal Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness, they found that tea towels was the best cloth, and then followed by cotton, silk, or linen, if you are fashion forward. Long-term care has been connected to close to 80% of COVID-19 deaths in Canada. Joining me on the line is Daniel Fontaine. He is the outgoing CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good evening, Daniel. Good evening. Thanks for uh, joining me on the line. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This is my final interview as the CEO for the BC Care Providers. So, <laughs> fantastic very occasion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, true confession here. This is true. You're <laughs> you were such an impassionate an impassioned leader, so passionate that early on, I thought you it was your company. That is how dedicated you were to the BC Care Providers Association. That's the truth. And I didn't even realize it when I spoke for you guys up at Whistler. But anyway, I'm delighted to have you, and I wish you all the best in your new position. But right now, let's stick with um, long-term care homes. Um, There were so many deaths and so much confusion and chaos and mayhem and lack of equipment in long-term care homes across Canada. Our seniors really lost out, are often the most marginalized, vulnerable, their immune systems have Mm -hmm. weakened as they age. But there's something else that contributed to this crisis in our country. Can you talk to me about that, please? Sure. Yeah, you've really kind of summed up uh, a number of the key issues. Uh, We know just based on kind of uh, past history and and we know that uh, with people living in long-term care have, as you indicated, a compromised immune system. So if if something like the flu or something like coronavirus gets into a long-term care home, we know that those um, those particular locations are going to be uh, very susceptible to a lot of people just passing away given uh, where we're at. So when we heard of the coronavirus coming uh, into uh, places like China and then off to Europe and then eventually here to Canada, the first place, obviously, that we were concerned about to make sure that we were able to kind of lock down and protect were long-term care homes. And so what happened was, and we're, and we're, going, we're just starting to kind of begin to have this discussion, is we, we went through this process where we emptied out a lot of our acute care hospitals. And, and I think that was all well documented. We, we've heard about that, where the hospitals kind of decanted. A lot of these people, uh, many of them were seniors. They're, they're in what's called alternate level of care, or ALC is the technical term. And they ended up being moved out uh, into long-term care homes. And so 
Um, what happened was that not only did they get into the long-term care homes, that added a lot of stress, obviously, and it filled up the long-term care homes across Canada and across British Columbia. But then when many of them got sick and actually had COVID-19, many of them did not go back into um, the acute care hospitals for, for treatment or to look if there was anything that could be done to, to kind of extend their life. And so we're just starting to talk about that and look at that and, and uh, how much of a factor that played in terms of some of the deaths that have happened across uh, Canada. Ageism is a big problem in North America. Mm-hmm. And why is it, do you, do you think, and I've certainly heard of that as well, that, uh, mm-hmm. that some of the residents of long-term care homes were not offered the option um, to go back to the emergency room, back mm-hmm. to the hospital for treatment. Why do you think that was? Did you think that, it, that they thought it, they're not worth it? They're, they're at the end of their lives anyway? You know, it's really hard to, to, to pinpoint, and I think when there is a, kind of a public inquiry or a review of what happened, I think we'll be able to hear from officials as to what was kind of running through their minds and why they didn't encourage people to come in. I mean, we, we do know that when someone passes away of COVID-19 within a long-term care setting, that statistic is on the books for the long-term care home. But if someone is transferred into an acute care hospital and they die in an acute care hospital, it's the acute care hospital that is basically recorded as where the death occurred. So I hope that, you know, that didn't play into it. Um, but I know from from uh, the little bit that I've had a chance to read in places and jurisdictions in the U.S. and Europe, when seniors were moved into uh, acute care settings and when they were provided with all the things that we've heard about, like like ventilators and, and uh, other types of, uh, of uh, treatments, many of them actually survived. And right. these are people who were in their 90s. Right? Right. You would, they were immunocompromised, but they survived. So right. I hope we explore that um, when the appropriate time is to look as to whether or not we could have done more. I couldn't agree with you more, absolutely. And I've certainly spoken, I've had a couple of patients whose, uh, elderly patients whose husbands um, and spouses have Mm -hmm. um, died as a result of COVID-19. And they're trying to absorb the whole process, which was a Mm -hmm. bit of a mess um, from being discharged from the hospital, sent to the long-term care home, and then Mm -hmm. sent back to the hospital and then back to the care home. And, you know, people didn't know what was going on and, and, and what was happening. Um, there was some controversy earlier on that it was um, stated if your parents are in a long-term care home, get them out. And mm-hmm. when then public health officials said, no, 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 they're safe in the long-term care homes. I mean, that's that's another hot topic, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, so no, it is a hot topic and a very controversial one for sure. And we've seen some of even the ramifications of that. I just saw a news item yesterday, I think it was on Global which had the family trying now to get their, their mother back into the long-term care home and because they had taken them home and I guess they had been taken off the list, etc. So it, it, there's some problems there just in terms of when you remove someone. But the, the reality is, you know, uh, one of the safest places you can be if you're someone that, that is uh, fairly elderly and, and you're uh, kind of immunocompromised and, and you are... Um, uh, vulnerable is in a long-term care setting. I mean, the statistics, although we've, you know, you and I have been, and everyone listening have been listening to the, the news, and 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 it's hard sometimes to put this into context, but in British Columbia, for example, if you look at everyone within the system, within the long-term care system, the total number of, of uh, seniors that were, that contracted COVID-19 was 0.6%, and it was, I think, 0.3% for all the staff working within the system. So, 
I know you would agree with me that I would rather have that number be zero. But when you look at it, um, you know, over 99% of people who were living in care were protected. Uh, the staff that are there are trained, the nurses, the, the, the clinical staff, the care aides all know what to do in terms of preventing these viruses and flu bugs from coming in and what happens when they do. And so it was very controversial when I, I heard that uh, they were telling people to take um, their grandma or mom or dad out because there is just as much risk, if not more, by removing them from their home, essentially, and then bringing them back into a different uh, environment, in particular because many of these people also live with dementia, many of them advanced stages of dementia, and it can be very disorienting to suddenly take them out of their home and bring them into a, a new environment. Right. And, and is that safer than having caregivers go, having seniors stay in their homes and we don't have much mm-hmm. time left and, and mm-hmm. having a caregiver go in or different caregivers all the time and at a very high cost? Yeah, it's a different model, right? Home care is a very different model from long-term care. It does, you know, break, obviously come into your single family home or your condo and apartment. And for many people that works uh, absolutely well uh, as well. So there is no kind of right or wrong. I just think when you look at the entire picture of what happened, um, and that story will be told, and we've already heard a little bit about that, about how BC was set apart from Ontario and Quebec. It didn't require the military. We, right. we didn't have to go to that length. So we, we did something right here, and I think we need to assess what that is and, and where we can learn and where we, we you know could improve I'm pretty convinced, even though I'm not going to be at the helm anymore, I'm pretty convinced the people who are there are very open to, to learning and, and adapting as, as we go forward. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. I just want to get my quick plug-in for the personal massages that I like to give out during your segment <laughs> of the show. They are from, which it's a medical issue, Um, They are from Floravi.com. So whatever question you ask for the doctor, you will be entered into the My Little Contest, my buzzing little contest, uh, where you can win the fabulous Dahlia or Rose or Lily. These are eloquent, elegant personal massagers, certainly to put a smile on your face in a pandemic. Okay, Dr. Parhar, we're back. (laughs) It's you and me. There, There we go. There you go. Are you there? Okay. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Did you turn him off? During... <laughs> Did I turn you off, Dr. Parr? <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, I've had too much sun today. <laughs> Some might call it something else. No, um, but I did. We're going to talk about vitamin D. So a friend of mine wanted to go paddle boarding and I went. It was a bit of an overcast day where I am and I never thought to put my sunscreen on and I got fried to a crisp. <laughs> so, but, but it is vitamin D, a little bit too excessive and I should have used sunscreen. But uh, tell me about vitamin D as it relates to COVID-19. Sure, Maureen, or even if we take a couple of steps back, and uh, as much as your um, paddleboarding sounds like a lot of fun, and we do have to remember to wear sunscreen because there's lots of risks with sun exposure and, and, and the damage that the sun can cause. But vitamin D is an essential vitamin, we think, um, but there's a receptor um, in, in the skin, um, and, and when the skin is exposed to the sun, that's how vitamin D is typically made. Most people know that vitamin D is really important for bone health and calcium, but we think that vitamin D also probably plays a role in immune function and, um, and protection against types of cancer. Now, most of the time, we can get vitamin D from sun exposure. Um, there's some dietary ways of getting it through um, fish oils and fatty fish and so forth. Now, there's an interesting connection, and every week morning, we keep learning new stuff about COVID-19. 
Now, a study came out from New Orleans that said that of the people that were the sickest, so these were people under the age of 75 but um, were in the ICU, 100% of them were found to have low vitamin D. And what's interesting is the research didn't go looking for this. They were looking at all the different qualities of people that got really sick and ended up in the ICU, and sadly those that ended up dying. And 100% of them ended up having low vitamin D. Now, I have to caution our listeners, that's called an association and not causation. That doesn't mean that the low vitamin D necessarily led to them getting really sick or dying. It just means that of the people that got sick and, and died, a lot of them had, or all of them had, low vitamin D. So there's some thought to, should we be looking at supplementing people's vitamin D? And there's a bunch of eager researchers, University of Alberta and around the world, that are looking to study this some more. So we're going to be waiting with bated breath on this to see what role vitamin D plays. Um, certainly people should have their vitamin D levels at a healthy level anyway, which is defined as 600 international units per day. And if you're low, um, you're checking with your family doctor and respect insurance and getting a supplement may be reasonable, um, but it'll be interesting to watch what role this plays. And so is that the daily dose of vitamin D is um, 600 international units daily? That's okay. what the recommend. That's the recommended. Now, some people will advocate for 1,000 to uh-huh. 1,500 of IU, and certainly when you get the supplement from the drugstore um, or from wherever you're from, health food store, um, typically people will get 1,000 IU in that supplement. So um, it, toxicity or ex- um, dangerous levels of vitamin D are 10 times that. So you're probably safe with a supplement of 1,000 IU per day um, without going into the toxic or too much vitamin D. Right. Um, it begs a number of questions, but first I have Louise on the line from Edmonton. Good evening, Louise. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's my imagination, but can a person get a headache and dizziness from too much vitamin D? Because I'm journaling my D, and I swear that I'm getting dizzy and headachey and people are saying well they take 10,000 units and this if I took 10,000 units I'd, I'd be passed out you know so I'm very confused around vitamin D how much do you take Louise I take uh, actually I just take a calcium magnesium d3 pill every every second day I can't take it every day because I get a headache and do you think it's so, from the D? Could it be the D or the calcium? Is it, is it all combined into one? That's right. Okay. Yeah, it is. Um, the magnesium, I doubt it. That goes to the muscles, the calcium, because I, I haven't, I'm lactose intolerant, so I think I'm absorbing that well. But uh, the D3 apparently is necessary for a calcium absorption. So I was just wondering, is it possible to have headache and dizziness from too much D3? D? Dr. Parha? So, so great, great question. Um, so typically we think a safe upper limit of um, a vitamin D intake is up to 4,000 IU a day. So you're taking a combination product. I would just read the ingredients and see how much of the three things that are in there, uh, how much vitamin D is in there. I would be, I would suspect it's probably about 1,000 IU, and that should be safe, but even up to 4,000 should be safe. Now, in terms of having too much vitamin D, um, it can cause symptoms of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation and weakness, but really that would be super high levels. That would be like, you know, 10 times that. So it would be unlikely that that level that's in that supplement would cause too much um, of what you're describing. 
Would it be worth it to switch the um, tablet from taking it as a combined tablet to three different ones and ensure that she's just getting 600 units of the D3? Yeah, um, you could do that, if, especially if you think there's a component of it that's causing the side effect, then you could divide them up. Um, most of the time when they make these combination products, when they, um, they, they, they package it in a way that would work for the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should be fairly tolerable, but if you're suspicious one of the ingredients is causing it, then do divide them up. Like take the magnesium separate and the vitamin D separate and the calcium separate. Right, a little investigative reporting there, Louise. Thank you so much for your question, and uh, just leave your information with Brendan if you'd like to be entered into the contest. Okay, sure. Thanks. You're very welcome, and good luck with that. Um, yes. Okay. So, yeah, great information on vitamin D. Again, do we go back to diet and and having a healthy, wholesome diet, rich in nutrients and um, vitamin D uh, foods? Is that always the best way to get it for those people who don't have any absorption issues? No, it's much better to take a pill. I'm kidding, of course. Um, the, the, well, you would you know, say that. You're a guy. No. <laughs> yeah, and a doctor. No, um, all, all kidding aside, yes, a balanced, um, you know, Canada Food Guide type diet that has all our nutrients in it is the first and, and, and preferred way of getting all our nutrients, including vitamin D. And, and uh, reasonable amounts of sun exposure so your body can um, make that vitamin D or activate that vitamin D. But, um, but if you're not getting it, especially if you're not going outside, then a supplement is a good second choice. Yeah, and, and it's a reminder to get outside, which was actually my point. Um, not get outside with the vim and vigor with which I went out today with, uh, you know, rushing out there. Um, but yes, uh, it is a good idea to um, to get out and get some exercise, especially in this time of COVID-19, because vitamin D is associated with depression as well. We're gonna, I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the program. Yeah, and, and there's been, there was some, um, it was controversial, but there was also suggestions about colon health and other things. So vitamin D is one of those topics that everyone likes to talk about. And um, and so you know, people do rave about its um, benefits for other health conditions. So we have to be careful that we're not promising too much, but certainly it'll be interesting to see what role it plays in COVID, if any, in COVID-19 serious infection. Yeah, and I'd be curious because more men have gotten sick, although <clears throat> more women have been vulnerable to it. There's very, some inter- very interesting interesting stats around it. Um, but to see if the men's health, if, if it was mostly men who um, had had low vitamin D levels, and is that uh, something for men to consider? Um, something else, the, the COVID-19 impact on women has been uh, disproportionately large. Uh, more women um, have seen steeper job losses that, than men. They are often in part-time work. Women work in sectors that have been affected by the pandemic from the beginning, like the most of the caregivers, nurses, uh, people in the front lines are quite often women. And so this has impacted women's health more so than men's health. That's, um, we're finding that pattern and it's one of those unintended consequences of the lockdown or staying at home. Even today when I was speaking to a patient, um, you know, she's, they're dealing with a lot of stuff. So it's being at home, being still responsible for either um, helping senior parents or um, children at home, helping children with homeschooling. And 
and then still being responsible for a lot of um, a lot of the other jobs. Now, I'm not saying that the male partners aren't doing that, but it does seem to be a big burden carried by the female partner, and and it does lead to a lot of stress. There's a lot of um, women in my practice that are saying, "Dr. Parr, I can't wait to go back to work. I need to get out of here." Um, <laughs> and so it, it's actually quite um, interesting, and we don't take um, we don't take that into account, I think. And and I think the job loss itself. Um, there's been a lot of administrative um, roles. Um, um, we, we've talked about the food sector and hospitality, a lot of women in that that have lost their jobs. So I think it, um, it is going to have to, um, um, we are going to have to see how this um, progresses and, and what we can do to help women regain where they were before and hopefully exceed it. And, and one of the most pressing needs uh, to help women to get back to work, and maybe a lot of women are going to have to recreate themselves or, or pivot in their careers, but childcare has um, reared its you know head again um, as an issue that may stand in the way of women getting back to work. Absolutely, and and one of the um, jokes a colleague said today was, she said, you know, I'll be I'll be in a Zoom meeting with my colleagues from work, and then my two young kids in the next room are making loud noises that I'm pretty sure a crime's being committed. <laughs> and um, then she 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 said, you know, how can I stay in the Zoom meeting? I have to then leave my meeting, um, go and manage that, and then come back, or you know, it's, and 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 likewise. So trying to balance all of that um, it can be a real challenge. I have a question from a listener, uh, dear Maureen and Dr. Parr. I am a physical therapist and I am opening up my practice next week. I decided to delay it a week to see if there were any issues that had occurred. Do you have any recommendations for me? Um, brilliant question, Maureen. And, and um, this past week, uh, my patients have been asking about going back to their physiotherapist, their massage therapist, their chiropractor, their acupuncturist, and so forth. And I understand that over these last two months, people have been um, suffering and have had all sorts of pain and other management issues that they really needed to see their practitioner about. And Maureen, I think you said it well earlier on in the program when you said that um, when we talked about people protesting and going out, um, and they're loud and they're vocal and they're getting a lot of media attention, but doesn't get a lot of media attention are people who are actually scared to go out and scared to re-engage. And, and so I think one of the things I'm telling patients is, you know, make sure you're comfortable. And I can't give you that confidence or comfort, but see what you're comfortable with. And I would suggest things like, you know, both the practitioner and the patient should have a mask on. There should be PPE, depending on the procedure that's done. Avoid waiting rooms. Um, so a lot of people in physiotherapy and other practices are using people's cars or outside the building as the waiting room rather than in an enclosed space. And all the usual wipe down, wash hands, um, wipe down the, any sort of instruments and, and um, um, things that might be touched, but also regular hand washing and so forth. Um, the physiotherapy, physical therapy college, um, just like the massage therapy college and chiropractic college, are giving their members um, really good advice on what, what protocols need to be followed and the kind of screening that patients need to do. Um, um, before they come into those practices. So the guidelines are there, but on both sides, the therapist and the patients should feel comfortable that um, the measures are being taken before they sort of engage in that. Right. I know we have some stringent um, infection control practices in my clinic, and as uh, and I'm sure you do in yours as well, and we're having just one person in the waiting room and everybody is wearing masks, the practitioners as well as as the patients, and we're wiping everything down, and of course, in between patients. But you're right, if, if you don't feel comfortable going, 
Um, if you're somebody who is at risk, immunocompromised, um, maybe you know you're nervous for uh, contracting the virus and then passing it on. Um, you know, and I think you're you're absolutely right, Dr. Parhar. There are a lot of people who are abiding by all of this. I have a call from Yvette from Nanaimo. Hello, <clears throat> Yvette. Hi there. I would like to know from the doctor if by taking CMA uh, for the lungs, would that protect us against the virus? And CMA, is that the supplement you're speaking of? Yeah, it's a supplement, yeah. Yeah, so uh, another another topic that's kind of controversial right now. I don't think we have enough evidence to say that that would be um, would be beneficial right now, but probably one of many nutrients that's being studied. Um, so I would suggest that we don't have evidence to su- support taking that right now. Um, having said that, um, we know people with lung diseases like asthma, like COPD, are at higher risk. So do check in with your doctor to see how you could optimize those conditions. Um, an easier thing for our listeners to do would be to stop smoking. Right, so there are a lot of other things that we can do. The CMA evidence is probably not there yet in the in the medical literature to support it as a general recommendation, but perhaps down the road there may be evidence for that. And, and that's a dietary supplement. Is that correct? I'm not sure if it's a vitamin or a mineral. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I actually think it's a pro hormone. Uh, if I'm uh, chloromethylandrostenediol. <laughs> The, is um, the name. Um, yeah, so I would definitely speak with my um, physician about uh, whether, whether one should take it because um, there, you know, there may be some other side effects um, or, or it may actually, a lot of people take supplements and, and it can mix with medications that, they're, that they've been prescribed as well. Um, yeah. So great question and great answer, Dr. Parhar. And Yvette, if you'd like to be entered into our mighty contest, feel free to leave your email with Brendan. Okay. All right. Yes, following up, it'd be interesting to see if we even have waiting rooms anymore. You know, this is uh, true. I was was joking to my patients that if you missed the experience, I could sanitize some 1970s time magazines that are in my waiting room and and mail them to you. But uh, (laughs) no more magazines in the, in the waiting rooms either, or children's toys. Dr. Parhar, as usual, thank you so much for joining me on the program. You're a wealth of information. Next week, let's address immunity passports. I think those are interesting and they might be a sign of things to come. I had a guest scheduled for this segment, but my guest was suffering with depression that has been worsening in this pandemic. And my guest was not able to share their story tonight. That is how debilitating depression can be. Depression is classified as a mood disorder, and it's associated with feelings of sadness, loss, a pit in your stomach, or anger. These will impact the quality of life of anyone suffering with depression. It's incredibly common, and it is estimated, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, that 8.1% of American adults ages 20 and over have had depression in any given two-week period between the years 2013 and 2016. People have different experiences with depression. And I'm not talking about the kind of depression where people say, oh my God, I'm so depressed. I couldn't get that Gucci bag. I stood in line. I was six feet apart. And the shop closed before I got in. I'm so depressed. No, not that. We use the word depressed. We throw it around left, right, and center 
true depression interferes with your daily work. It results in lost productivity. It results in lost time. It's also a physical illness, and it may, you may experience headaches, abdominal pain, muscle aches. It can influence or affect your relationships and also some chronic health conditions. There are a number of health conditions that can worsen as a result of depression, and they include things like asthma, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, arthritis, obesity, and sexual dysfunction. Of course, we all feel down every now and again. It's normal. It's a part of life. These sad and upsetting events happen to all of us. Everything's going along swimmingly, and then we get that call. I had one such call a couple of weeks ago that just threw me into panic mode. Fortunately, it all resolved very rapidly, I have to say. So I was very grateful. But if you feel down or hopeless on a regular basis, it might be depression and it might warrant a conversation with your doctor. In fact, it would because it is a serious medical condition that can worsen when you are not treated properly. And there are a number of treatments for depression. Again, there's a stigma associated with this medical condition called depression. And oftentimes, depending on the type of treatment that you seek or that you obtain, you may start to see symptoms improve in anything from minutes to just a few weeks. Sometimes people report that they feel blue or they feel sad. You can feel like you're in a bad mood all the time. You may demonstrate your depression uh, through anger. And in fact, it can be manifested through anger. And in fact, a lot of men actually manifest their depression by being angry. As I mentioned, it's also a physical condition as well. You may not have sexual desire. In fact, I get this question so often from people, from men, women, and they. You know, we associate low sexual desire with women, and, you know, but it also can happen to men. And fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in men and in women. Although, guys, we're way more tired than you are. Besides, if we have way more to do. No, that is not true. Um, fatigue is the number one reason, and fatigue is also a symptom of depression. One patient described his depression to me as trying to, as having a pair of boots on and trying to lift one boot out of the quicksand after the other. That is how hard it was for him to live his life. He also experienced shortness of breath. He had irritability. You may have anxiousness or restlessness. You may feel empty. You may have no interest in activities in which you were previously interested in, especially favored activities. These can be red flags. You may have thoughts of suicide or death by suicide. Many people medicate their depression through the use of substances, alcohol, marijuana, other drugs. People often engage in high-risk activities because they just don't care. You may also, you may not report this, but somebody else might report this on you. 
where you may have performance issues in the bedroom or a lack of sexual performance. Everything else is great, although there are some other symptoms, maybe fatigue, maybe you need to nap, maybe you just don't quite feel like yourself, but maybe you're having issues with erectile function. There can be digestive problems, headache, pains. Women may experience uh, symptoms related to their mood, so they may experience irritability, emotional well-being. They too may withdraw from social engagements and have thoughts of suicide. A woman's thinking or cognitive abilities may be impacted, and she may speak more slowly, may think more slowly, and that's men and women as well, may think more slowly because it does affect your thinking patterns. Sleep patterns can be interrupted as well, meaning you may have difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or you may sleep too much. That can also impact your productivity the next day when you have to go to work or deal with your kids or your parents or an issue that comes up. Many people feel that loss of energy and you may have weight loss or weight gain. Oftentimes the weight loss is from that anxiety, that anxiety that uh, you cannot uh, seem to function because of. You know, and anxiety and depression are two ends of the spectrum. And there's a number of different reasons for depression. They can range from biological to circumstantial. So you may have a family history of depression, and that means you're at higher risk for developing depression. You may have had early childhood trauma, and some events affect the way your body reacts to fear and stressful situations. There, if you have a less active frontal lobe, and you may not know this necessarily, um, but your brain structure may change, so your frontal lobe is, is altered. And scientists aren't actually sure if this happens as a result of the depression or, be, or it, you're more at risk of the depression because of your brain structure. There are certain medical conditions like insomnia, chronic pain, or ADHD may also contribute to your risk of getting depression. And a history of drug or alcohol misuse can also impact your risk. And also lack of self-care, going, going, going on the treadmill and not taking care of yourself um, may lead you to experiencing depression. About 21% of people who have a substance use problem also experience depression. So being self-critical, having low self-esteem, certain medications, loss of a loved one, economic issues, all of these may influence feelings of depression as well as who will develop depression and who won't. So there are so many tests and, and quite frankly, I find that a lot of um, practitioners don't utilize these validated questionnaires to, as a marker for depression but they are questions about your mood, your appetite, sleep pattern, activity level, and thoughts. Well, there's so many um, treatments for all the complications that can be associated with depression, like weight gain or loss, physical pain, panic attacks, relationship problems, social isolation, and self-harm. There are so many different ways that this manifests itself that um, And there are so many different treatments for it. And I promised you that Kindy Gill would return to the program. And she has, and she's on the line. Uh, good evening, Kindy. 
Hi, Maureen. For those of you who are just joining the program, Kindy uh, is a former CEO, uh, very uh, finessed at dealing with stress and responsibility, but found herself at her wit's end, as all of us do at some point in our life, with a number of situations that had occurred. And that led her to be trained in something called the Dalian Method. For those people who want less conflict, more peace, less feelings of anger, anxiety, or sadness that keep resurfacing. So, Kindy, tell me about this Dalian method and how it may help people who are suffering from feelings of emptiness, sadness, anxiety, panic, insomnia, uh, or just a basic discomfort with life. Yeah, so all those things that you're describing, they're basically symptoms of something, symptoms of something that's not going well in a person's life. Um, and what the Dalian method does is it's sort of it's sort of a way of addressing, let's call it the human condition, the human condition of aspiring and wanting certain things to unfold in your existence, but finding that you're actually meeting other things and the other things aren't feeling as palatable. And so what the Dalian method does is it helps you to first detoxify the exact state that you're feeling. So if you're feeling anxious or you're feeling angry or you're feeling sad and grief-stricken, it doesn't matter which range of the emotion it is that you're actually experiencing. The Dalian method will help you detoxify that out of your body so that you can get to a layer deeper inside that helps you to understand much more clearly why that emotion is arising in the way that it does. Because every experience we're having in life and every emotion that we're having, there's always a root cause for it. So it sort of hunts for the root cause. And let's, let's call that, so, so to speak, like the virus that's in the way that we're running our lives. And then once that root cause has been found, what happens with the Dalian method is you get to another place deeper inside that is closer to your true nature. And it's like the awakening of consciousness. But the simplest way to put it would be like this. Like, for example, when you have a little baby that's first born, and you know how beautiful those sparkly eyes look and like how you can sort of gaze straight into them and there's no sort of end to them and there's like a mystery there. And then as the child is surfacing and sort of getting a little bit older, then it giggles and laughs and it has a a huge innate sense of innocence and sort of an awe about life and then a creative sort of instinct to explore right Mm -hmm. so all those qualities of innocence exploration curiosity um, a mystery a zest for life they're still already still inside us but they're sort of weighed under all these other experiences that we've had as we've grown up and so what the dying method does it it reawakens your connection with your own innocence with your own um, zest for life and your own curiosity curiosity and your creative instincts so it's almost reuniting you back with your own joy and back with your own sense of purpose so it's sort of working backwards detoxifying you back through the experiences you've had in your life until you get back to that core nature that we were all born with so it's a real deep soul search i i from what i gather It sounds like a complicated deep search, but it's a very self-contained system that's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end always comes back to you growing some degree of self-awareness and raising your consciousness so that you've got a better connection with yourself. 
the beginning always starts with whatever state you're in and it doesn't try to muddle, muddle the waters or try to make you feel something or something different to what you're really experiencing. And everything happens with non-judgment. So if it's anger or rage or violence or whatever, it doesn't matter. And then the middle part is the story that has to be unraveled as to why that situation is the way that it is and what you're experiencing and the hidden lessons behind it so that you can go back to your nature. So it's a very self-contained system and it's almost like it's cherry-picking off every aspect of you that's sabotaging the quality of your life. And then maybe a month later, maybe six months later, you might decide to have another go with the method and then you can address another layer. Um, so it's, it's deep but rapid in its effectiveness and because it's rapid in its effectiveness, the capacity to go deeper happens through sort of self-motivation and self-momentum. I have a an email that has just mm-hmm. come in. Obviously, they're listening right now. Uh, dear Maureen, thanks for your show. I really get the sense that you and your guests are trying to help others, but I'm feeling hopeless, panicked, and lost. I've lost my job, and I'm so worried about finances, even though I've taken advantage of EI and the other government programs. My husband may lose his job soon, and he and I are constantly at each other's throats, so hence, no sex. None. My kids, who I'm supposed to be homeschooling, are driving me around the bend. If that's not bad enough, I am so stressed because my parents are not abiding by the lockdown restrictions and are always wanting to visit us, and I have to keep saying no for their own good. I heard your guest say, I have to get back to my nature, but I haven't got a clue what my nature is at this point. How could the Dalian method possibly help me? How does it actually work? Sigh. Very good question. So you just listened from that question. A whole host of things are actually being experienced um, by this caller. And so she's just quickly articulated them all into an email to you, right? So mm-hmm. ranging from not being able to control what's happening with the parents to what's going on with the kids that are driving her nuts to a relationship with her husband seems to be falling apart and no physical connection, no intimacy, that type of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So what the Italian method does is it says, okay, that's your state. So we need almost to allow you to rant, complain, moan, um, express exactly how you feel by, about everything that you're actually going through, right? So if it's as basic as I'm stressed or it's, or it's deeper as I don't feel loved or it's, or it's um, um, I feel used or I feel like I, I'm the only one that has to carry the can or I'm the one with all the burden, it doesn't matter what quality of thoughts are associated with that state that's just been described, but there are a whole range of thoughts that are happening that are somewhere tucked inside that are having to be buried inside and they occasionally come out with the odd outburst when people are having to manage the um, things with their husband or the arguments are surfacing or whatever, right? And often even the arguments don't tend to be about the real thought or the real issue. They're all around the issue. Right, exactly. Um, and you do yes. online consults for people, correct? I do. Yes, and absolutely. what's the best way for people to get in touch with you to deal with their issues? Yes. Yeah. They can get hold of me through my website or an email. So on my website, there's a place for a person to just in their details and they can chat. Um, and I do a complimentary chat before we connect and actually do any detailed work. Or they can contact me through my email, which is kindy, and then at kindygill.com. And kindy spelt kind with an I on the end. And the gill is G-I-L-L. And you are so very kind. And your website is kindygill.com. Thank you so much for joining me. 
uh, this evening on the program. It's always a pleasure to have you and you do such tremendous work. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.